in God's house today. My name is BJ. It's such an honor to be a part of the ministry team here at First Baptist. Pastor Tom is preaching at a student event in Atlanta, Georgia this weekend. Then he and his sweet family are going to have some time to relax and enjoy the spring break time. I hope they get filled up and rejuvenated. Pastor Tom, we love you. We look forward to having you back next week. Uh, we've been in a series in Matthew, but Pastor Tom asked me to preach today. He wanted to kind of do a one-off, if you will, to give kind of a little bit of a break from Matthew for you guys. So it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, we're going to be in a couple different places for our primary text. If you want to follow along, the passages will also be on the screen. We're going to start in Hebrews 9, 26, 10, 10, and 14. And also, you want to flip over to Genesis uh, chapter 2 and 3. We'll be right in there uh, for a lot of our time together this morning, too. So before we get started, just by a show of hands real quick, all across the room, show of hands. How many of us in the room today would raise our hands and say, you know what? Man, I think, I believe that I'm perfect. Last. Okay, that's what I got in the first service, too. Yeah, same thing. Absolutely. No, seriously, nothing prideful, nothing arrogant about it. How many of you know that you have been made perfect? There we go. There we go. A couple hands. Okay, okay. Everybody's like, I don't know. Is this a trick question? Well, let me ask you then, for those of you who didn't raise your hand or those of you who felt judgment toward those who did, let me ask you. And this question serves as the basis, the theme, the title for this whole message. Who told you that you were naked? Uh-oh. Who told you that you were naked? Let's just say you could get one commandment right. Let's just say that you could get one thing right out of all the commands in Scripture, all the things that Jesus taught and said. If you could get just one thing right... What would it be? Your minds are turning. What would you think? Would it not be maybe the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength? Love your neighbors yourself? Would this not embody and impact everything else about our lives if we were able to live this out? But Jesus said that all the law and the prophets were fulfilled in this very command. In Luke's account, he told the expert of the law who asked him about inheriting eternal life, he said, do this and you will live. But how do we live this out? How do we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, body, strength? How do we love our neighbors as ourselves? What if we don't love ourselves very much? What if we don't have the right perception of God? Can we love him fully? If our perception of God is off, then how we view ourselves will be off. And then generally how we view ourselves is what we project onto others. And so we can't really fully love others like we love ourselves the way that God would have us love him if all of these things aren't in line with what God says about himself and about us. So let me ask you again, who told you that you were naked? Hebrews 9.26, I told you we'd start there. There's three verses here we're going to look at, 9.26, 10.10, and then 10.14 is the, the foundation for this whole message, the, the premise for which all of this is founded upon. It says, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And by his will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All. Here's the verse. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Who told you you were naked? We oftentimes think of perfection or being perfect as being without flaw or being without failure of any kind. We think of being perfect as always getting it right every single time, never sinning. 
But this is not the true meaning of perfection in the context of this passage here. When it says made perfect, it's being made whole, to be completed. My favorite part of this is it says in the, in the original language, it says to add to what is lacking to render a thing full. To add to what is lacking to render a thing full. In baseball, a perfect game in a nine-inning game is when the pitcher gets all 27 batters out consecutively, one in a row, right after another. No one gets any hits, no walks, no hit batters, no uncaught third strikes. Perfect 27 consecutive in a row outs. This doesn't mean that in a perfect game the pitcher won't still throw a few balls or that the opposing team won't make some contact with the ball. It simply means that at the end, everybody's out 27 in a row all the time. The Bible says that a righteous man may fall seven times, but seven times he shall arise. Perhaps a more accurate illustration would be that of a complete game. A complete game in baseball is just where one pitcher pitches the entire duration of the game, regardless of how many hits or runs are scored. A complete game is when the one pitcher pitches the whole entire game. In 1912, there was a game between the Detroit Tigers and the Philadelphia A's, the pitcher named Alan Travers was awarded a complete game for the Tigers by allowing the A's to get 26 hits and 24 runs. How many times do you think he thought to himself, surely the coach is about to take me out? 24 runs, 26 hits, that's a lot. Maybe you're here today, maybe you can relate. The enemy keeps getting hit after hit against you, and you thought, surely God's going to take me out. Maybe you felt defeated, embarrassed, like you'd never win. Like you're standing on the pitcher's mound of life naked before an onslaught of opposition, pointing and laughing, just daring you to walk off and quit. My desire for you today, Christian, is that you would be confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will see it to completion. Who told you that you we're naked. I've divided this message into three sections, and these three will serve as the outline for the message for all you note takers out there. The problem, the illusion, and the solution. The problem, the illusion, and the solution. First, the problem. We all could probably guess it. Sin. Man and woman were created good, even perfect, in the image of God. All the other creatures God made in, in creation, you see the creation story, it says he made everything of the earth, sky, and sea, everything according to its kind. You see that listed over and over and over, according to its kind. But whenever we get to the creation of man, we see God say, now let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. In the image of God, he created them male and female. At the end of Genesis 2, the Bible says that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We all know what happens next, the fall. Adam and Eve were deceived and tempted, ate the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and their eyes were opened. Their perception changed. And now they perceive good and evil. They experience for the first time the shame that comes from the separation or that cognitive awareness of the separateness between good and evil. It was not the evil had not existed before the fall. It's literally manifested directly in front of them. They were just unaware of such separation. They were conscious only of God. They identified themselves only with God. There was nothing else in their perception. Then the fall. 
disobedience to the command of God brought and still brings this perception of distance or separation between us and God. God is holy. He's set apart. He's altogether good. He's perfect in every way, without flaw, without error. And because sin is missing the mark of God's holiness, it always leads to a sense of feeling that we are separate or there's distance between us and God. I mentioned earlier that the great commandment is perhaps the single most important command from Jesus in all of Scripture in the New Testament, and that getting that right would impact everything else about our lives. But our view of God affects how we perceive ourselves. And how we view ourselves affects how we perceive others. And if we have an unhealthy or inaccurate view of God or who we are in him, then the love we have for ourselves or for others is going to be diluted at best. And what we project upon the world is not at all what God is actually offering, his divine plan of redemption through and to himself. Either one of two things is true today. You're either still living in a perceived condition of brokenness and separation, sin, because you've not fully trusted the finished work of Jesus for your atonement and reconciliation to God, bringing you freedom and joy to your life. You need to trust him today. You need to be saved. You need to place your faith in him. Or you have faith in Christ. You've trusted his atoning sacrifice for you, but you somehow believe the lie and live in a state of illusion about who God is, about who you are, bringing fear and anxiety and doubt to your life. You project those things to those who live around you, and it hinders our witness. It allows the enemy to oftentimes deem us as ineffective. We think things like, God can never use me, and I messed up too much. We base our lives and our position to God on our own abilities, on our own uh, righteousness, and our own ability to do good today. We often think about our relationship to God as just like how we've done like the last 72 hours of our life. It's an illusion. Who told you that you were naked? The illusion. Separation. Over in Genesis 3, I told you to turn there. Genesis 3, 7 through 11. This is immediately following the fall, the disobedience, the eating of the fruit. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Man's first response to his sin is often much like our response as well. He tried to cover up his shame. He tried to cover up his sin with his own efforts and his own tactics. He was exposed. He tried sewing fig leaves together to cover his nakedness. Now, I'm not exactly sure how big fig leaves are, but either way, that's not a lot of coverage. It didn't work, obviously. It never does in our own efforts because as God approaches them, they run and hide. They felt separated. They felt fallen. They felt naked and afraid. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And what God says next has had me shaken for months. It's this playing this over and over in my head. The question he proses, who told you you were naked? The question I want to ask you today and want you to think about, is it real? Is it real? 
I read a quote from a psychologist that taught medical psychology at Columbia University, later became a Christian, spent their life writing and teaching to help convince believers that God had, in fact, made them whole, had completed them, had made them perfect. And when it comes to the completeness of the wholeness that we have before God, the unity, the reconciliation that we have through the atonement, they wrote this. They said, it is impossible not to have. When it comes to ourselves as believers, as followers of Christ, our relationship to God, our unity with him, our oneness with him, it is impossible not to have, but it is possible not to know that you have. Illusion. It's impossible not to have right relationship with God through Christ, through faith in him, but it is possible that we don't know that we have it. This is where I believe many Christians live today. When it comes to their perfection, their completeness, their unity in Christ, just like in the first service when I asked you all and I said, hey, how many of you thought you were perfect if Pastor Tom got here and said the same thing and I was sitting right over there? I wouldn't raise my hand either. The shame, the fear, the separation that Adam felt in that moment. Was it because of his disobedience and his new perceived awareness of the separation of good and evil? Or was it because that, in fact, God had left him? Because of their sin, had God now abandoned them to their new life of nakedness, shame, sweat, struggle, and his ultimate punishment of banishment and death? Let's look what happens in Genesis 3. Following the fall, God brings the curse down. And the first thing that happens, Genesis 3, 21, look what God does. Look what happens here. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. You ever felt as though maybe God's abandoned you? That God's not there? You ever felt as though maybe because of your circumstances, your pain, maybe the loss of a loved one, or maybe even because of your sin? Is the shame and separation that we feel, the incompleteness, the brokenness, or lack of perfection as we claim, is it real? Is it real? Are we simply doomed to a life of pain and struggle, exposed to sin, sickness, and death, without any hope for true healing in this life? Because of the sin of one man, are we punished by God to live in peril of mind, riddled with anxiety and worry over the uncertainty, not just of our lives here on the earth, but uncertainty over whether or not God's actually gonna allow us into his heaven when we die? We continue to hear the same lies from the enemy, the father of lies that whispered to Eve in that little garden. Did God really say? Did God really say? Who told you? that you were naked. We look at the fall, the curse, banishment, and death as God's great punishment to mankind for sin, and we might think, man, if God invokes such a, a terrible punishment for one single act of disobedience, then what in the world is he gonna do to me for a lifetime of sin and selfishness? No wonder we struggle to trust him. No wonder we doubt our position with him. No wonder we're filled with worry and anger and anxiousness and resentment, maybe towards God, towards ourselves, and towards others. God had not abandoned Adam. He came pursuing him. In the moment of Adam's greatest failure, God comes to provide for them and even sacrifice part of himself to cover their shame. Where do you think the clothing of skin came from? The first blood spilled was to provide coverings for the sin and the shame of mankind, and this would not be the last time. God had not abandoned them, and he's not abandoned you. 
We see God present in their lives even after the fall in their new condition of sin and death. We see him present in the lives of their children as he tries to warn Cain of the dangers of anger and sin. And Cain rejects God and murders his brother in cold blood. We see God present in the life of Noah attempting to warn a wicked and perverse generation of mankind who the Bible says every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. He provides an ark, a covering, a means for salvation, but the people rejected God, mocked Noah, and were judged in the flood. We see God called Abraham with a promise that to make him who was an old man into a great nation and that his offspring would serve forever, that would bless all the peoples of the world, the promise of Messiah. We see God called Moses to deliver his people out of bondage in Egypt. We see him give uh, the, the sacrificial system to serve as a reflection of the true and better sacrifice that God himself would make for the ultimate atonement of sin to ultimately reconcile and restore all mankind to himself. God makes his covenant with David and that his descendants would rule on the throne forever, that his kingdom would have no end. And despite David and all his son's failures, God remains faithful to his promise. And now we have been given a new covenant, one that is unlike all the others, one that should get every person in this room fired up about the fact that we live in this time in history of God's redemptive story. We don't live under the law of the Old Testament, under the sacrificial system. We live under the new covenant in his blood. Look what it says. Hebrews 8, the new covenant, 8 through 12, should be on the screens. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. Are you ready? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What a great promise. Did you hear it? Where was the responsibility for mankind? What is God required of his people under the new covenant? How could he do such a thing? How can he just forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more without any effort or righteous living according to God's law? The answer, God's solution to the separation, to the brokenness, atonement. Atonement, the solution of God. Death wasn't God's punishment, it was his anecdote. Death wasn't God's punishment, it was his anecdote. God knew that mankind could never get it right, that we would never be able to live up to his standard of holiness, that if our confidence and joy and peace were be determined by our righteousness, then we would forever live in a state of brokenness and separation between us and God. If God allowed mankind to remain in the garden and eat from the tree of life and live forever in this perceived state of brokenness and separation, then you and I would be forever doomed to live in this state of fear and separation. That's true hell. The absence of God or the feeling of the absence of God, that's true hell. Death and banishment set God's divine plan for redemption into motion. Because man could now die, he could be redeemed in eternity. Because man can now die, God could come as a man, the perfect man, and die as an atoning sacrifice to break the curse and prove it by defeating death, the very thing that brought the curse, that the curse brought. 
through resurrection and providing hope and eternal life for you and I, that we too can now be restored and made perfect where there's nothing broken and nothing missing between us and God. But do we believe that? Do we truly trust the finished work of Christ has restored us 100% to God, nothing broken, nothing mixed? He would be the one to fix it. He would be the one to do the impossible. He would empty himself that we might be filled. If that act mankind performed brought brokenness, then how much more did the act of God bring healing and perfection and reconciliation? Do we truly believe the fall and the separation created by man is more powerful than the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? Who told you that you were naked? Romans 5, Paul explains this. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. Again, who told you you were naked? By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Yes, until new heaven, new earth, we do have to live with the curse but we don't have to live under it. We have to live with things like pain and suffering and loss of loved ones. We have to live with things like struggling with sin, and we're gonna look at it in just a few moments, but the reality is that we've been set free from that. We've been set free from the curse. It does not have any hold over us. We've been united to Christ. Right now, you might be thinking, okay, if I'm perfect, then what about my sin? If I've been made whole, made complete with nothing broken and nothing missing between me and God, then why do I still struggle with sin? You might say, look, I want to do good. I really do love God and I want to do what's right, but I struggle so much to carry it out. I felt this way. I know you've probably felt this way. Thankfully, we're not the first Christians to struggle with this. Let's look quickly at the writings of the Apostle Paul. Just a few chapters up in Romans 7. He says, for I had the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is always present with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my, within my members. This is how it makes us feel. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. 
because of all of that, he says, therefore, which Pastor Tom told us a week or two ago, that's what the therefore is there for. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul here is demonstrating to us that our being made perfect is not being made without flaw so as to never sin again. The evidence of the one who's been made perfect is not that they cease to sin, but that they recognize their sin. And they turn quickly to God because they know that ultimately sin is not a part of who we truly are anymore. That's not who we are. Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. It's no longer a part of our eternal selves. So when sin is active in our lives, it's not who we are before God. It's not who God has made us to be. It's part of the old nature that's literally dead and it's going to perish with this body. So whenever we sin and when we fall short, we don't look at it as just a, a failure that's going to doom us for all eternity. It's something that God has redeemed. It's something that he's forgiven. The Bible says that he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's as though he remembers them no more. Remember the new covenant. I will remember their sins no more. And so for us to live in a state of defeat, or shame, doubt, fear, it's not what God has for us. We're not experiencing the fullness that he has for us when we've lived defeated lives. Yes, we should take our sins seriously. Yes, this doesn't give us permission to go live any which way we want to. By our new creation, by the new life he's given us, we want to follow him. We want to honor him. We want to live our lives for him. J. Vernon McGee wrote this beautiful poem that I think fits so well. And what Baptist three-point sermon is complete without a poem? Listen to this. Run, run, and do the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly and then gives me wings. Jesus has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's restored us to God. He's given us an opportunity to experience his presence, to be filled with his Holy Spirit. So what does this mean for us? If we're made perfect, then I hope by now you see that as a Christian, you've been fully restored, made fully whole, fully completed, nothing broken, nothing missing. What does it mean? What does it look like for our lives that we're made perfect but being made holy? Made perfect, just being made whole, complete, to add to what is missing, to complete, to fulfill a thing. Nothing broken, nothing missing. The word holy just simply means to be set apart. Shout out to Pastor Tom for helping me to illustrate this. Imagine with me that Nike approaches Michael Jordan during the 1998 NBA Finals, just before his final performance ever, in my opinion, as the greatest player of all time. Don't hate me for that. And they present him with three different shoe options that they made just for him, specifically for this occasion. Three different Nike shoes they've designed just for Michael, just for this series, going into game six. There are none of them, there are none like them. They're all three made completely perfect, complete in every way, each one of them with their own unique style and look. Anybody would die to have any of these three pairs of shoes designed just for Michael Jordan. But let me ask you, which one of these three pairs of shoes will actually be set apart? Yeah, the, the pair that he picked to wear in game six of the NBA Finals when he knocks down the game winner and gives his team their sixth championship in eight years, all of which are made 
perfect, but the fact that he chose that pair of shoes will separate them from all the rest. It will give them more value than any of the others combined. So as a Christian, we've been made perfect, but what is the shoe that we have to put on that sets us apart? What differentiates us from the world who hasn't received Christ by faith, that hasn't received the atonement, the reconciliation to God? What differentiates us to the world? What sets us apart? Colossians 3 mentions all these Christian virtues that set us apart. It talks about compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. But in Colossians 3.14, the Bible says that above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Whenever we buy into the fact that God has made us perfect, that whatever was broken in us has been restored, whenever we truly believe that what Jesus done for us was something we could never do for ourselves, and we see God in this unconditional loving light, we see him in this pure light for who he is, we're able to look at ourselves and we're able to see ourselves the way he looks at us as his perfectly redeemed children. And we're able to see ourselves in this light. So then we're able to look at other people. We're able to look at them the same way we look at ourselves. We're able to live this life to where we are able to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and body and strength. Because we know that he's all that we have. We know that because of what he's done, man, everything I have is his. It's the only joy, the only hope, the only confidence I have is that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. That his atoning sacrifice covers my sin, restores me to God. And listen, dear friend, if there's anything else that gets me into heaven, I'm not going to make it. And neither are you. So why would we not love him? Why would we not look at ourselves and just love yourself? That way you can look at someone else just like you look at yourself because I believe it's really hard for me to see something in you that I can't first see in myself. If I believe that I'm loved, if I believe that I'm made perfect, if I believe that I'm a loving child of God, then when I look at you and I see you make mistakes or I see you make flaws or I see things bad happen in your life, I can look at you and I can say, that's not them. That's not who they are. When you believe this, love becomes the natural flavor of our life. Salt and light. It's how you're free and it's how others see that there is no difference between you and me. The world needs it. You need it. Let's live it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the grace and the love that you've shown us. We thank you, Lord, that when we couldn't get to you, you came to us. We thank you, oh God, that there's nothing in our own efforts or our own righteousness that we might do to be restored to you. But Lord, you've done all that was required by the holiness and the purity of the law, by your own goodness. You've done everything that was required for mankind to be one with you. And Lord, I pray that today for anybody in this room that maybe feels far from you, that hasn't trusted you for their salvation, that hasn't trusted you for, their, for reconciliation to you, God, I pray that today would be their day that they would transfer their trust to you, King Jesus, that they would see, Lord, that you are the better way, that in our own efforts, in our own tactics, no matter how good we try to be, no matter how much we try to pray or meditate or no matter how much we try to do the right thing, we always fall short. But, Lord God, you have completed us. You've done everything that we need to be restored to you. I pray for confidence this week for your people. I pray for power. I pray that you allow them to, God, overcome any thoughts of doubt or shame. 
God, any inadequate views of themselves, Lord, I pray you would wipe them away. God, may we all view ourselves in your perfect light as your perfect child. We love you, God. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.